footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares and another episode of your favorite horror storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav, and man is it good to be back. Fall is here. Scatter the leaves, carve the pumpkins. I can't wait for October and I've got a great lineup of stories for you all and some really good news. I hope you all enjoyed the Summer Bites series. It gave me an opportunity to work on some short stories and work on my dreadfully old house that is slowly falling apart and commit time to studies that um, are really important to me. It felt so good to get some sunshine after some dark times earlier this year. The fires though, right? One of the fires was close to my sister's in Bonnie Lake area and man, It just sounded like it was wild with people looting houses and others intentionally starting fires. Just insane. And then all the smoke. Jeez. And you know those murder hornets they keep talking about? Well, they are finding them. Um, They happen to be only miles or less down the road from me. In fact, my son and I were having a campfire and doing a cleanup. Um... It's a couple weeks ago. It was before the fires and all, like, the fire threats and everything. Anyway, it was before all that, and we were having this campfire, and we actually saw one. It just came up and buzzed us. No kidding. It was ginormous, like the size of a hummingbird, really. It was huge. And my son was, like, running around trying to hit it with a shovel, but it was pretty fast. Um, But those things are no joke. (laughs) Okay, enough talk of the plagues of 2020. Um, I did want to talk to you about all things dark and scary. The good kind of dark and scary, not the plague kind. Um, We have had a huge spike towards the end of summer here of listeners and subscribers. And I just want to say a big hello to all of you. And I hope you're enjoying the stories. Um... Next, I want to let you know that we have a guest story coming up in October. It's fantastic, and I can't wait to share it with you. Um, I also want to let you know that I will be releasing my very first audiobook called 98 Ways to Skin a Clown. I know you love that title. I know you do. (laughs) It's more than a novella than a novel. But um, I'll be sharing that with you this month. So, yay. Okay. And now for the good news. Dark Softly Tales is now accepting fiction submissions. Yay! This is something I've been wanting to do, and I'm ready to take the leap. What am I looking for? I'm looking for dark and scary with a silver lining of innocence. Think of a dark night sky with the stars shining bright. Dark Softly Tales welcomes all writers, whether you are just beginning or you've been writing for a while. Everyone is welcome to submit a story. 
You will find the link to the guidelines down in the show notes, so be sure to check that. And while you're there, be sure to tap on the stars button or write a little review. That helps the podcast so much, and I would be so grateful for that. Okay, tonight's story. There was something I heard on a movie recently that struck me as brilliant and so insightful. It's from a movie called Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring Again. It's about an old Buddhist monk who is raising a boy in a sort of floating temple on a lake. The movie is broken up into seasons of the boy's life. In the summer cycles, the boy is now a young man, and a mother brings her daughter, a young woman, to the monk because she has an illness. The young woman's mother leaves her daughter there, and a relationship forms between the man, the young man and the woman. When the old monk discovers their little romance going on, he asks the young woman if she's cured, and she says yes, and he tells her it's time to go. But the young man doesn't want her to leave, and the old man tells him, Lust awakens the desire to possess, and that awakens the intent to murder which in the movie is exactly what happens. This led me to thinking about attachments, about how life is meant to be flowing from one cycle to the next, moving, changing. And sometimes we get attached to something, fixated on it. We get stagnant when that happens, and in that stagnation is often the desire to control, to possess something. Bad things happen when we walk down that road. Just like they do in this week's story called Lamb to the Slaughter by Ruol Dahl. Things are going to get dark really fast. But don't worry, there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. Lamb to the Slaughter by Ruol Dahl The room was warm and clean, the curtains drawn, the two table lamps alight, hers and the one by the empty chair opposite. On the sideboard behind her, two tall glasses, soda water, whiskey, fresh ice cubes in the thermos bucket. Mary Maloney was waiting for her husband to come home from work. Now and again, She would glance up at the clock, but without anxiety, merely to please herself with the thought that each minute gone by made it nearer the time when he would come. There was a slow smiling air about her and about everything she did. The drop of a head as she bent over her sewing was curiously tranquil. Her skin, for this was her sixth month with child, had acquired a wonderful translucent quality. The mouth was soft and the eyes, with their new placid look, 
seemed larger than before. When the clock said ten minutes to five, she began to listen, and a few moments later, punctually as always, she heard the tires on the gravel outside and the car door slamming, the footsteps passing the window, the key turning in the lock. She laid aside her sewing, stood up, and went forward to kiss him as he came in. Hello, darling, she said. Hello, darling, he answered. She took his coat and hung it in the closet. Then she walked over and made the drinks, a strongish one for him, a weak one for herself. And soon she was back again in her chair with the sewing, and he and the other, opposite, holding the tall glass with both hands, rocking in it so the ice cubes tinkled against the side. For her, this was always a blissful time of day. She knew he didn't want to speak much until the first drink was finished, and she, on the other side, was content to sit quietly, enjoying his company after the long hours alone in the house. She loved to luxuriate in the presence of this man, and to feel almost as a sunbather feels. The sun, that warm male glow that came out of him to her when they were alone together. She loved him for the way he sat loosely in a chair, for the way he came in a door, or moved slowly across the room with long strides. She loved intent, far look in his eyes when they rested in her, the funny shape of the mouth, and especially the way he remained silent about his tiredness, sitting still with himself until the whiskey had taken some of it away. Tired, darling. Yes, he said. I'm tired. As he spoke, he did an unusual thing. He lifted his glass and drained it in one swallow, although there was still half of it, at least half of it left. She wasn't really watching him, but she knew what he had done because she heard the ice cubes falling back against the bottom of the empty glass when he lowered his arm. He paused a moment, leaning forward in his chair. Then he got up and went slowly over to fetch himself another. Oh, I'll get it, she cried, jumping up. Sit down, he said. When he came back, she noticed that the new drink was dark amber with a quantity of whiskey in it. Uh, darling, shall I get your slippers? No. She watched him as he began to sip the dark yellow drink, and she could see little oily swirls in the liquid because it was so strong. I think it's a shame, she said, when a policeman gets to be as senior as you. They keep him walking about on his feet all day long. He didn't answer, so she bent her head again and went on with her sewing. But each time he lifted the drink to his lips, she heard the ice cubes clinking against the side of the glass. Darling, she said, would you like me to get you some cheese? I haven't made any supper because it's Thursday. No he said. If you're too tired to eat out, she went on, it's still not too late. There's plenty of meat and stuff in the freezer, and you can have it right here and not even move out of that chair. Her eyes waited on him for an answer, a smile, a little nod, but he made no sign. 
Anyway, she went on, I'll get you some cheese and crackers first. I don't want it, he said. She moved uneasily in her chair, the large eyes still watching his face. But you must eat. I'll fix it anyway, and then you can have it or not, as you like. She stood up and placed her sewing on the table by the lamp. Sit down, he said. Just for a minute, sit down. It wasn't till then that she began to get frightened. Go on, he said. Sit down. She lowered herself back slowly into the chair, watching him all the time with those large, bewildered eyes. He had finished the second drink and was staring down into the glass, frowning. Listen, he said. I've got something to tell you. Oh, what is it, darling? What's the matter? He had now become absolutely motionless, and he kept his head down so that the light from the lamp beside him fell across the upper part of his face, leaving the chin and mouth in shadow. She noticed there was a little muscle moving near the corner of his left eye. This is going to be a bit of shock to you, I'm afraid, he said. But I've thought about it a good deal, and I've decided the only thing to do is to tell you right away. I hope you won't blame me too much. And he told her. It didn't take long, four or five minutes at most, and she sat very still through it all, watching him with a kind of dazed horror as he went further and further away from her with each word. So there it is, he added, and I know it's kind of a bad time to be telling you, but there simply wasn't any other way. Of course I'll give you money and see you're looked after, but there needn't really be any fuss. I hope not anyway. It wouldn't be very good for my job. Her first instinct was not to believe any of it, to reject it all. It occurred to her that perhaps he hadn't even spoken, that she herself had imagined the whole thing. Maybe, if she went about her business and acted as though she hadn't been listening, then later, when she sort of woke up again, she might find none of it had ever happened. I'll get the supper, she managed to whisper, and this time, he didn't stop her. When she walked across the room, she couldn't feel her feet touching the floor. She couldn't feel anything at all, except a slight nausea and a desire to vomit. Everything was automatic now. Down the steps to the cellar, the light switch, the deep freeze, the hand inside the cabinet taking hold of the first object it met. She lifted it out and looked at it. It was wrapped in paper. So she took off the paper and looked at it again. A leg of lamb. All right, then. They would have lamb for supper. She carried it upstairs, holding the thin bone end of it with both her hands. And as she went through the living room, she saw him standing over by the window with his back to her. And she stopped. 
for God's sake, he said, hearing her but not turning around. Don't make supper for me. I'm going out. At that point, Mary Maloney simply walked up behind him, and without any pause, she swung the big frozen leg of lamb high in the air and brought it down as hard as she could on the back of his head. She might just as well have hit him with a steel club. She stepped back a pace, waiting, and the funny thing was that he remained standing there for at least four or five seconds, gently swaying. Then he crashed to the carpet. The violence of the crash, the noise, the small table overturning, helped bring her out of the shock. She came out slowly, feeling cold and surprised, and she stood for a while, blinking at the body, still holding the ridiculous piece of meat tight with both hands. All right, she told herself, so I've killed him. It was extraordinary now, how clear her mind became all of a sudden. She began thinking very fast. As the wife of a detective, she knew quite well what the penalty would be. That was fine. It made no difference to her. In fact, it would be a relief. On the other hand, what about the child? What were the laws about murderers with unborn children? Did they kill, then, both mother and child? Or did they wait until the tenth month? What did they do? Mary Maloney didn't know, and she certainly wasn't prepared to take a chance. She carried the meat into the kitchen, placed it on a pan, turned the oven on high, and shoved it inside. Then she washed her hands and ran upstairs to the bedroom. She sat down before the mirror, tidied her hair, touched up her lips and face. She tried a smile. It came out rather peculiar. She tried again. Hello, Sam, she said brightly, aloud. The voice sounded peculiar, too. I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, and I think a can of peas. That was much better. Both the smile and the voice were coming out better now. She rehearsed it several times more. Then she ran downstairs, took her coat, went out the back door, down the garden, and into the street. It wasn't six o'clock yet, and the lights were still on in the grocery shop. Hello, Sam, she said brightly, smiling at the man behind the counter. Why, good evening, Miss Maloney. How are you? I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, and I think a can of peas. The man turned and reached up behind him on the shelf for the peas. Patrick's decided he's tired and doesn't want to eat out tonight she told him. We usually go out on Thursdays, you know, and now he's caught me without any vegetables in the house. Then how about meat, Mrs. Maloney? Oh no, I've got meat, thanks. I got a nice leg of lamb from the freezer. Oh. I don't much like cooking it frozen, Sam, but I'm taking a chance on it this time. You think it'll be all right? Personally, the grocer said, I don't believe it makes any difference. You want these Idaho potatoes? Oh yes, that'll be fine. Two of those. Anything else? The grocer cocked his head on one side, 
looking at her pleasantly. How about afterwards? What are you going to give him for afterwards? Uh, well, what would you suggest, Sam? The man glanced around his shop. How about a nice big slice of cheesecake? I know he likes that. Perfect, she said. He loves it. And when it was all wrapped up and she had paid, she put on her brightest smile and said, Thank you, Sam. Good night. Good night, Mrs. Maloney, and thank you. And now, she told herself as she hurried back, all she was doing now, she was returning home to her husband, and he was waiting for his supper, and she must cook it good, and it make it as tasty as possible, because the poor man was tired. And if, when she entered the house, she happened to find anything unusual, or tragic, or terrible, then naturally it would be a shock, and she'd become frantic with grief and horror. Mind you, she wasn't expecting to find anything. She was just going home with the vegetables. Mrs. Patrick Maloney going home with the vegetables on a Thursday evening to cook supper for her husband. That's the way, she told herself, do everything right and natural. Keep things absolutely natural, and there'll be no need for any acting at all. Therefore, when she entered the kitchen by the back door, she was humming a little tune to herself and smiling. Patrick, she called. How are you, darling? She put the parcel down on the table and went through into the living room. And when she saw him lying there on the floor with his legs doubled up, and one arm twisted back underneath his body, it really was rather a shock. All the old love and longing for him welled up inside her, and she ran over to him, knelt down beside him, and began to cry her heart out. It was easy. No acting was necessary. A few minutes later, she got up and went to the phone. She knew the number of the police station, and when the man at the other end answered, she cried to him, Quick! Come quick! Patrick's dead! Who's speaking? Mrs. Maloney! Mrs. Patrick Maloney! You mean Patrick Maloney's dead? I think so, she sobbed. He's lying on the floor, and I think he's dead. Be right over, the man said. The car came very quickly. And when she opened the front door, two policemen walked in. She knew them both. She knew nearly all the men at that precinct, and she fell right into a chair. Then went to join the other one, who was called O'Malley, kneeling by the body. Is he dead? She cried. I'm afraid he is. What happened? Briefly. She told her story about going to the grocer and coming back to find him on the floor. While she was talking, crying, and talking, Noonan discovered a small patch of congealed blood on the dead man's head. He showed it to O'Malley, who got up at once and hurried to the phone. Soon, other men began to come into the house. First, a doctor. Then, two detectives, one of whom she knew by name. Later, a police photographer arrived and took pictures, and a man who knew about fingerprints. 
There was a great deal of whispering and muttering beside the corpse, and the detectives kept asking her a lot of questions. But they always treated her kindly. She told her story again, this time right from the beginning, when Patrick had come in, and she was sewing, and he was tired, so tired he hadn't wanted to go out for supper. She told how he'd put the meat in the oven. It's there now, cooking. And how she'd slopped out to the grocer for vegetables and come back to find him lying on the floor. Which grocer? One of the detectives asked. She told him, and he turned and whispered something to the other detective who immediately went outside into the street. In 15 minutes, he was back with a page of notes and there was more whispering. And through her sobbing, she heard a few of the whispered phrases. Acted quite normally. Very cheerful. Wanted to give him a good supper. Peas, cheesecake, impossible that she. After a while, the photographer and the doctor departed, and two other men came in and took the corpse away on a stretcher. Then the fingerprint man went away. The two detectives remained, and so did the two policemen. They were exceptionally nice to her, and Jack Noonan asked if she would rather go somewhere else, to her sister's house, perhaps, or to his own wife, who would take care of her and put her up for the night. No, she had said. She didn't feel she could move even a yard at the moment. Would they mind awfully if she stayed where she was until she felt better? She didn't feel too good at the moment. She really didn't. Then hadn't she better lie down on the bed? Jack Noonan asked. No, she had said. She'd like to stay right where she was, in this chair. A little later, perhaps, when she felt better, she would move. So they left her there while they went about their business, searching the house. Occasionally, one of the detectives asked her another question. Sometimes Jack Noonan spoke at her gently as he passed by. Her husband, he told her, had been killed by a blow on the back of the head, administered with a heavy, blunt instrument, almost certainly a large piece of metal. They were looking for the weapon. The murderer may have taken it with him, but on the other hand, he may have thrown it away or hidden it somewhere on the premises. It's the old story, he said. Get the weapons and you've got the man. Later, one of the detectives came up and sat beside her. Did she know, he asked, of anything in the house that could have been used as the weapon? Would she mind having to look around to see if anything was missing? A very big spanner, for example or a heavy metal vase. They didn't have any heavy metal vases, she said, or a big spanner. She didn't think they had a big spanner, but there might be some things like that in the garage. The search went on. She knew that there were other policemen in the garden all around the house, and she could hear their footsteps on the gravel outside. And sometimes she saw a flash of a torch through a chink in the curtains. It began to get late, nearly nine, she noticed by the clock on the mantel. 
The four men searching the rooms seemed to be growing weary, a trifle exasperated. Jack, she said, the next time Sergeant Noonan went by, would you mind giving me a drink? Sure, I'll give you a drink. You mean this whiskey? Oh, yes, please, but just the small one. It might make me feel better. He handed her the glass. Why don't you have one yourself? She said. You must be awfully tired. Please do. You've been very good to me. Well, he answered, it's not strictly allowed, but I might take just a drop to keep me going. One by one, the others came in and were persuaded to take a little nip of whiskey. They stood around rather awkwardly with the drinks in their hands, uncomfortable in her presence, trying to say consoling things to her. Sergeant Noonan wandered into the kitchen, came out quickly and said, Look, Mrs. Maloney, you know that oven of yours is still on and the meat is still inside. Oh, dear me! She cried. So it is. I'd better turn it off for you, hadn't I? Oh, will you do that, Jack? Thank you so much. When the sergeant returned the second time, she looked at him with her large, dark, tearful eyes. Jack Noonan, she said. Yes? Would you do me a small favor, you and these others? We can try, Mrs. Maloney. Well, she said, here you all are, and good friends of dear Patrick's too, and helping to catch the man who killed him. You must be terribly hungry by now, because it's long past your supper time, and I know Patrick would never forgive me, God bless his soul, if I allowed you to remain in this house without offering you decent hospitality. Why don't you eat up that lamb that's in the oven? It'll be cooked just right by now. Wouldn't dream of it, Sergeant Noonan said. Oh, please, she begged. Please eat it. Personally, I couldn't tough a thing. Certainly not what's been in the house when he was here. But it's all right for you. It'd be a favor to me if you'd eat it up. Then you can go on with your work again afterwards. There was a good deal of hesitating among the four policemen, but they were clearly hungry, and in the end, they were persuaded to go into the kitchen and help themselves. The woman stayed where she was, listening to them speaking among themselves, their voices thick and sloppy because their mouths were full of meat. Have some more, Charlie. No, better not finish it. She wants us to finish it. She said so. Be doing her a favor. Okay, then. Give me some more. That's a hell of a big club that Gut must have used to hit poor Patrick, one of them was saying. The doctor says his skull was smashed all to pieces, just like from a sledgehammer. That's why it ought to be easy to find. Exactly what I say. Whoever done it, they're not going to be carrying a thing like that around with them longer than they need. One of them belched. Personally, I think it's right here on the premises. Probably right under our very noses. 
What you think, Jack? And in the other room, Mary Maloney began to giggle. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mav Sky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mav Sky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and, of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.